turn with me to 1 Timothy in chapter 6. 1 Timothy in chapter 6. I want us to read from verse 12 to verse 16. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Jesus Christ who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honour an everlasting power. Amen. Well, turn with me, please, to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. It only has 49 verses, but it must rank as one of the longer chapters in all of Scripture. The reason for that is, of course, please remember that the chapters and the verses are artificial, they're not inspired. The chapter's coming along more than a thousand years after uh, the uh, coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the verses coming along much, much, much more recently. So the verses in the chapter divisions are not inspired. um, And sometimes they're not even helpful. But the verses here are generally much longer than many chapters in Scripture. So I want to read the whole of Daniel 2, which is why I've asked for only three hymns this morning. The danger with Daniel is that we assume we know it, because if you've been to Sunday school, you were brought up on the stories of Daniel. Um, And the danger is we don't know it as well as we think we know it. We know the Sunday school version. We don't necessarily know the scripture version. So I want to read all of Daniel chapter 2. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. 
king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore no king, lord or ruler, has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason the king was angry and very furious, and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then, with counsel and wisdom... Daniel answered Arioch, the king, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made known the decision to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed. Be the name of God for ever and ever. For wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captains of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this, and 
He who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. The image's head was soft fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. While you watched, a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, (coughs) so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell... O beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. (coughs) And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain. And its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. Prostrate before Daniel. And commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said. Truly your God is the God of gods. The Lord of kings. And a revealer of secrets. Since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him. Many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. 
Also, Daniel petitioned the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Daniel chapter 2, a tale of failure and hope. We are living in a world today, frankly, where we see the failure of all the world's hopes. Those of you who are old enough will remember the early 1990s. And we were promised the benefits of peace. The Cold War had ended. The Iron Curtain had fallen. And now we were going to reap the benefits of peace. Going into the uplands of tremendous days to come. And all the blessing that would be ours. And the increased prosperity. And everything that was good. Well we were promised it. And today. Well today we have Russia fighting in Ukraine. And Israel fighting in Gaza. We have the Chinese planting their own islands in the middle of the South China Sea, better known as the Pacific Ocean, and claiming large chunks of it as theirs against all international rules. We have saber-rattling on every side. And in fact, in the last couple of weeks, we've had two senior British generals suggesting that the entire population under the age of 60 needs to be military mil- trained, <laughs> trained by the military So that when war comes, as it is going to come, we are ready as a nation to fight. So much for the peace dividend of the early 90s. The failure of this world's hopes. And yes, we are still experiencing a period of prosperity here. But if you know your history, you only have to go back to the late 1920s, early 1930s in Germany. Germany, suddenly when the Massive downturn in the world's economy came, was really badly hit. If you wanted a loaf of bread, you needed virtually a wheelbarrow of paper money to go and buy it. So much for prosperity and money. The failure of the world's hopes. We see just that here in this chapter. We also see here the certain and sure hope of the Christian and their salvation in the God of all sovereignty. Let's begin then with the failure, the problem. (coughs) The first 13 verses show us then the failure that we find at the heart of the world's view. And I'm, I'm lumping all the world's different views together. I don't care whether it's a religious worldview or whether it's a secular worldview. The world's view always falls apart and does not work and cannot work. Have a look at the first verse. It begins with something that you have all experienced in the last 24 hours, a dream. Every one of us here dreamt last night. We know that scientifically. I have no memory of what I dreamt of last night. Sometimes I wake up and the dream almost seems more real than waking up. But most of the time we've got no memory of it. But we all dream. But this dream of Nebuchadnezzar's was a dream that deeply disturbed him. So much so that because of this dream, he could not sleep. It took away the comfort and the benefit of sleep. He was a man disturbed at the deepest part of his being. So he calls together every religious, 
scientific and philosophical expert that was employed in Babylon. By which I mean he called the greatest of them. He didn't call the common teacher from the school. He called the senior professor from the university. He, he didn't call, without being, being unkind here, the nursing auxiliary, but the consultant surgeon. In other words, he called the very best of all the wise men and soothsayers and Chaldeans and magicians and astrologers, all the scientists and pseudoscientists and all the rest. He called them all together. He wanted to know both the dream and its interpretation. Now, it's important at that point to realize he hadn't forgotten the dream. Look at verse 3. He says, the king said to them, I have had a dream. My spirit is anxious to know the dream. Now, that almost sounds like a man who's woken up, realizes he's had a bad dream and can't remember what the dream is. That's not the case. He says, verse 9, tell me the dream. And I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. In other words, he remembered his dream only too well. Before he could trust what they had to say, it meant he wanted to know that they knew the dream without him telling them. You see, if you give me a dream you've dreamt, I can give you an interpretation. You've no idea whether it's reliable or not. And the king knew. He knew that this was a serious matter. And he didn't want these men just fobbing him off with whatever came to mind. He wanted to be sure he could trust them. You see, for all their learning, he knew these men had absolutely no idea what he had dreamt. And therefore, how on earth could they tell him what his dream meant? It was just an exercise in massaging his feelings. And they themselves admit, verse 10, there isn't a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Who, who can tell you the dream? Who can tell you what I dreamt? Who can tell you what, what was in your mind last night? Nobody. There isn't a person alive who can do that. You're, what you're asking is unreasonable. So three times Nebuchadnezzar asked them, tell me my dream, tell me the interpretation. Three times these men say, we can't do it. We can't do it. Three times. It's an interesting number. We're not going to go into the numbers of Daniel. But it's an interesting number in the book of Daniel. Three times. Three times they couldn't do it. You see, <coughs> they failed. Yet Nebuchadnezzar was disturbed by this dream. He was unsettled by his dream. And clearly it's affecting his rational mind. Here is a man who, uh, who was headed up a, a, a massive empire. Babylon was a newly arisen empire in, in, in the terms of the history of the day. It, it was a, the new boy on the block. It, it had existed as a subpart of Assyria before that and it was in its small independent kingdom before that. But really, as an empire, it was the new boy on the block. And Nebuchadnezzar was not a foolish man. And yet his reasoning seems to be affected. Any normal man would have sanctioned these men, would have punished them, would have said, you're a bunch of charlatans, I'm going to send you back to school. 
I'm going to tax you. I'm going to put you in prison for a time. I'm going to sideline you. No, not Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 12, he was angry and furious. I've never been furious with anybody because they couldn't tell me what I dreamt the night before. (laughs) That's unreasonable, isn't it? That's very unreasonable. But not only that, he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Not just the professor, but the school teacher. Not just the consultant surgeon, but the auxiliary nurse. Kill them all. And burn their houses to the ground. Crisp the lot. Destroy them. That's unreasonable. Just because these men had failed. And they failed... Because they did not and they could not take any account of the living God. Or of the fact that the living God is the sovereign God who acts in time. That's their fundamental failure here. They neither know God nor do they worship God. And therefore they cannot take account of God. God is not in their reasoning. They've created little idols in their own image. They've they've come up with carvings that they worshipped and tales they generated around them. It's very interesting, if you go to the British Museum in London, you will see part of the Gilgamesh epic, which is one of the ancient flood accounts from the Babylonian Empire, and it's a fantastical account. I don't say go there to read it, because it's not written in English, I'm sorry, English wasn't around in the 8th century BC and the 7th century BC, but you can read translations of it, and it's fantastical. And in fact, you can read the, the, the creation epics, and they're even more fantastical. Because what was happening is they were taking the things that were true and they were corrupting them and turning them into tales that suited themselves. You see the same thing later happening with the Greeks and then the Romans come along and they do the same thing. And they are myths and fantasies. Because the world does not and cannot take account of God. The same thing is happening in our own day. You have the myth and fantasy of atheistic evolutionary science. Science that can't be tested, that cannot be observed, that cannot be repeated, that frankly fails every test of true science, yet it's asserted as a fact. It's the modern myth that seeks to sideline every thought of God, that cannot and will not take account of God. But the problem here is this. Who had given Nebuchadnezzar the dream? God. Who had disturbed Nebuchadnezzar's sleep? It was God. Who was going to break into Nebuchadnezzar's life? It was God. Who challenged him in his sleep? God. Who challenged him at the fiery furnace on the plain of Duran in chapter 3? It was God. Who challenged him in chapter 4? When he himself was foolish enough to think that he had built his great city and palace for his own benefit, by his own greatness. Who challenged him? God. God breaking into time. God breaking into this world. It was God alone, therefore, who could give Nebuchadnezzar the dream and its true meaning. These men, oh, clever men, important men, rich men, they couldn't do it. They didn't know the one true living creator God. Nor did they want to know him. They simply didn't want to. So, what was the problem here? Was the problem the dream? 
Well, yes, of course the dream was the problem. God had given Nebuchadnezzar the dream and he couldn't get anybody to tell him the dream. So the dream was definitely the problem. It was beyond the king's control. He didn't ask for the dream. He didn't seek out the dream. He didn't want the dream. But the dream had come, given to him unbidden. This was the sovereign God at work in his life. And yes, the dream was the problem because for all of the study, all the qualifications, all the pomp and ceremony and robes and houses and money and all the respect that these men had, not one of them could tell Nebuchadnezzar either what he had dreamt nor what it meant. See, the true problem here is beyond these men of the world because the problem is God. The problem is God. It's still the same today. The world cannot account for God who is at work in this world. Oh, the God of this world, if they have a God at all, is like the God described here by the Chaldeans and the wise men. He doesn't live with men. He's far remote. He's distant. He's unknown and unknowable. That's the God of Islam, by the way, in case you're wondering. It's a God who is... Who is Just not really that interested. That's far away. And in our modern Western culture, we have evolutionary science that has led to this widespread dismissal of God from the conscience of people. How often when we go into the open air in Wolverhampton on a Wednesday lunchtime, do we get somebody coming up to us and saying at some point, "Ah, science has disproved all this God nonsense. And of course it's done no such thing. But it's a convenient handle to hang on to. Because where do you find that? Well, you find it on the BBC, and you find it on ITV, and especially on Channel 4 and Channel 5, and you'll you'll find it on on, on the internet, left, right, and centre. It comes across the radio waves. You'll find it in your magazines. You'll find it in your books. You'll find it everywhere. It's in Hollywood films. You name it. It's everywhere. So there is now a widespread desire to to deny God. In the words of the Apostle in Romans 1, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. To push it down. That's the natural instinct of every human being born into this world. is to push away the truth. You see, so far as most are concerned, God is not even in the picture today. So they cannot account for God at work in this world. What do people see? They see crime, hurt, pain, disaster, suffering, poverty. And they see it in purely human terms. That God might be at work is hidden from most people. Last year we were privileged to have a pastor come to Wolverhampton from Moldova. He's actually a Ukrainian pastor who's been working in Moldova for many years. And he shared with us how he had been able to go to support a pastor living in one of the front line cities in the battle between Russia and Ukraine. He was in a church where the vast majority of the church had fled. There were only about 30 or 40 people left in the fellowship, but he had stayed because he said, my part is here with his people. And what little they had, they were using and providing to support people. And the door that's been opened to the gospel through this was incredible. Not just there, but in many parts of the Ukraine. God using this terrible, terrible time of suffering for his own glory. You see, the work of God in providence in this world is hidden from the eyes of people. 
Somebody once said, have you ever seen a, a painting or a drawing of John Calvin? And have you ever noticed how miserable he looked? Well, as somebody once pointed out, you'd look miserable if you lived for 26 years non-stop without a migraine too. And yet seven days of the week, he preached in the morning in French. He preached to the Bible college students in the afternoon in Latin. And every year he sent missionaries out into France, into Italy, knowing he was sending the missionaries out to die. Would you look cheerful and hale and hearty and happy? But God was at work in all of that. You see, God is at work in this world. <coughs> Even though God is not in the thinking of modern Western society today. <coughs> and the consequence of, the fa- of this failure of society around us is very clear in this chapter. What does the king do when he's troubled? He finds no answer. He lashes out in anger. What do people around us do when they find no answer? They lash out in anger. When rulers of nations have no other answer, you can expect what? Rumors of wars and actual wars. That's what you can expect. When people have no answer, what can you expect? You can expect anger. (coughs) And hatred and violence and pain and Perhaps persecution coming down the line. See, this world has got no answer. None at all. All it has is its problem. That's why you've seen what you've seen this last week in Russia. That's why you've seen one politician killing another politician. Because the world has got no answer. All it's got is anger and frustration and hatred. And bitterness and loss. You see, for all our advances in thinking and in technology and in science, there's no answer in any of that to the human condition. Nor will you find it in the arts or in philosophy or the humanities. I mean, where is our progress if we're supposed to be evolving? Where is our progress to becoming a better species, to improving the human condition? All we see is what Jeremiah said two and a half thousand years ago. Who knows the heart of man? It's desperately wicked and deceitful. Only God. Only God knows it. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows where your heart is at today. You can hide it from me. You can hide it from everyone. You can have that root of bitterness and hatred and anger in your heart. It's amazing how many people say they're angry at the God they don't believe exists. It's a ridiculous position to hold. It may be you are in that position today. Oh, my friend. And you're missing the fact that the improvement of the human condition is missing. Because God is missing, not just from modern thought, but from your life. That's the reality this morning. And of course, people say, well, if only God would show himself, then we could believe. That's what people want. They want God to show himself. They want some incredible miracle. God has performed the most incredible miracle that anybody could ever perform. God himself took the form of man and came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And he died on the cross for people like you and I. 
And yes, he died. There was no question about it. The Romans didn't make that kind of mistake. Don't go with a wishy-washy, marshmallow brain thinking that says, oh, well, he only fainted on the cross. Nobody fainted on the cross. You died on a cross. In pain and in agony. The number of people I see going into swimming pool are afraid to put their faces in the water in case they drown. On crucifixion, you drowned in fresh air. Jesus died and three days later rose again. Believe me, if the Jewish authorities or the Roman authorities could have produced the body and said, here it is, he's still dead, they would have. There was no body. And please don't tell me that 11 scared men could hold out against a legion of Roman troops and all the power of the Jewish authorities. Please, don't insult anybody's intelligence with such arguments. They don't hold water. God has revealed himself in the person of his son. He has revealed himself in the Bible, but most of all in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God sends you and I out to preach the good news of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has done the most incredible thing of all. He has come amongst us to deal with our sin. And what will you find amongst the majority of people today? They're not interested. They're not interested. God has spoken. But most people don't want to hear what he said. God has come, but they don't want to see why. Because sin makes people reject God. And my friend, if that's what you're doing this morning, oh, you can do it with a nice face. You can do it with a religious face. You can do it with a good face. But in your heart, you know you're doing it. Then you need to stop. Because you're in a terrible position. You're on a hopeless road. You have no answer. No end. Only anger and hopelessness. The failure of the world's view. <coughs> then what of the hope? The answer. Well, that occupies the rest of this chapter. And in fact, you could argue that it occupies the rest of the book of Daniel. That there is only one hope, there is only one answer, and it lies in the living God. But here it begins with Nebuchadnezzar's men moving to arrest, not just the wise men of Babylon now, but Daniel and his three friends. You find the mention there in verse 17 as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They also have Babylonian names, which we are more familiar with. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's men move on them. But Daniel is dealing now with Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard in verse 14. And he is gifted with the ability to speak to such a man. Have you noticed how some people, God seems to gift in a particular way, and others in another way. Well, to Daniel was given the ability to deal with men like this. A captain of the king's guard. Well, first of all, he's brave. Secondly, he's a warrior. Thirdly, he's a man of a certain amount of judgment. He's not just a, a brainless automaton, a robot. Here is a man who is used to dealing in death and is used to putting his own life on the line, but can also think. And Daniel is given this ability to speak to this man. God will equip you to do what he wants you to do in the place he wants you to do it. And you might not have to deal with the captain of the king's bodyguard. But he might have to equip you to deal with your next door neighbor. Or your grandson or granddaughter. 
or with your children or with your work colleague or with a friend in school or wherever it is in university or whatever it is, the Lord will equip you. He will give you the gift that you need. So Daniel finds out why Nebuchadnezzar wanted to kill all the king's men. And he asks for time. (coughs) Verse 16, Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he may tell the king the interpretation. Now, isn't that interesting? What had the king asked for three times? Tell me my dream and his interpretation. What did Daniel ask for? Time to tell him his interpretation. There's an assumption there Daniel is making that if God is going to give him the interpretation, he'll give him the dream as well. There is a man whose faith in God is absolute. He's not faced or phased by circumstances that he thinks are beyond his God. He knows his God to be sovereign, and his God is the only true hope. This is confidence, then, in the God of heaven. And it leads Daniel and his friends to do what you are going to do in the back room in this place later this week, which is to pray. They're going to pray because they know their God is the sovereign God. He is the most high God. And it leads them to spend the night in prayer. Verse 17, Daniel goes to his three friends and he tells them that they need to come and pray. They need to seek mercy from the God of heaven about this secret dream. And we're told in verse 19 that it's during the course of that night that God reveals both the dream and the interpretation to Daniel. And then what follows verses 20 through to 23 is this praise to God for his goodness. It's a a prayer that really does need a sermon all of its own. But notice something. It's only in the very last part of of the prayer, verse 23. It's only there that Daniel praises God for revealing the dream and its meaning. Verse 20, he praises God for his wisdom and might, that God is all-wise, he is almighty. Verses 21 and 22, then open that theme up for us, that God changes the times and seasons. By, by that, he doesn't just mean spring to summer, summer to autumn, autumn to winter, and then back around the cycle again. By that, he means, who raises up a ruler? The next 12 months, we'll see a general election in this country, we're told. Who's going to choose the next prime minister? Well, we're in a democratic, liberal, liberal democracy. You and I, we vote for MPs, and the MPs with the, uh, forming the biggest party, well, their leader becomes the prime minister and is appointed by His Majesty the King. What does the Bible say? Yes, all of that might be true, but it is God. It is God who removes kings and raises up kings. And that includes prime ministers in a liberal democracy. God appoints whom he wills. And he gives wisdom to the wise and understanding and knowledge to those who have it. He reveals the deep and hidden things. What's darkness he makes light because light is with him and it is in him and he is light. That should take you to John chapter 1, shouldn't it? In him is light. And the light is the life of men. Light shines in darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. Here is our God. He is praised for who he is. Here is one who cannot be stopped from doing what he has decreed to do. That that he cannot be thwarted in anything. 
You see, here is the one in whom is the answer. The, the God of all providence, the God of all sovereignty, the God who is truly God. Does the world have the answer here? Does the answer lie with the Chaldeans and the soothsayers and the magicians and the, and the astrologers? No. The world doesn't have the answer. Does the world have the answer today? No. The world views held by everyone from atheists through hedonists, that's those who live for nothing but pleasure, right through to the many, many world religions that are all man-made. Where do they all end in? Uncertainty. Uncertainty. Try your best. Live as well as you can. Achieve what you can. Be as good as you can. And maybe, perhaps, at the end of it all, they don't know the living God. They have no answer in the face of life and death. But you see, these men here, these men here, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they could have answered the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only hope in life and death? If you've never read the answer before, go and look it up in full later. It begins this way. My only hope in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong both body and soul to my God and my Savior. Oh, it's a glorious answer. And it goes on from there. It's worth reading. You see, these men knew to whom they belonged. The one true living God. The one who was not only their hope in life, but their hope in death and in the life to come. They knew there was only one all-wise, all-powerful God. The living God, Yahweh, Jehovah God. That he alone had power to, raise, to rise up rulers, to bring them down. To rise up cultures and empires and nations. And then to reduce them to the dust of history. Oh, there's the great generals, Alexander. And when his troops refused to go any further than northern India... They'd had enough. They'd been on year after year fighting and conquering. They'd, they'd, they'd wiped out the Persian Empire. And they were now moving into India. And when they refused to go any further, they wanted to go home. It's said that Alexander wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. Julius Caesar, centuries later, arrived at the tomb of Alexandria, of Alexander. <coughs> and apparently he wept. Because here was a man who had conquered worlds at the age of 30 and he hadn't even begun at the age of 50. Or you can look at a William of Normandy or a Genghis Khan or a Napoleon Bonaparte or an Adolf Hitler or a Joseph Stalin and any one of 10,000 other petty rulers over the centuries and millennia who all think they've achieved what they achieved by their own genius, their own brilliance, their own magnificence. But it's God at work. It's God at work. He has the power. He has the sovereign right. And he does all things well. It's true when you watch the international news and the home news later on. And it's true in your own life, Christian. Because he alone is wisdom. What does scripture say about wisdom? How often do we read the book of Proverbs and miss what it's telling us? That the fear of the Lord... It's the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise? Oh, get your qualifications. Do your training in work. You want to be wise? 
Oh, read the books that are available. You want to be wise? Fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. Be in awe of him. Love and adore him. And what of the wisdom of this world? Well, 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that it is foolishness. Because it's God alone who knows everything. He knows the, the, the secrets of your heart and my heart and of every heart in Birmingham. As we drove in from the M6 today, you pass so many homes. Who knows who lives there? I don't. Perhaps you might know one or two of those homes. But who knows who lives in all of them? God does. And he knows everything about everyone who lives in every one of those homes. And he knows the secrets of their heart. Just like he knows the secrets of your heart and mine. He knows everything about everything everywhere. Because he is the all-knowing creator and sustainer God. Nothing happens in this world, in this life. Without his knowing it. You see the answer. The hope that is ours. Lies in our God. The living God. It doesn't live, lie in winning the lottery. I pray that as a Christian you don't gamble. I pray that you don't go buying lottery tickets and that garbage. You have something far better. You have the living God. Don't worship at the idol of, the, of money and of chance. No, it's not, it's not in winning the lottery. It's, it's not in, in having the best qualifications. There's nothing wrong with good qualifications. It's not in having the best house. There's nothing wrong with having the best house. But it's not in that. It's not in having the best career. There's nothing wrong with having a good career. They're not wrong. But to live for those things. To make that your hope. To make materialism this world. Then you're living the failure. Not living the certain rock solid hope. Oh the world is many, full of many good things. And maybe the Lord has given you a few of those things. Then give him the thanks for it. And use those things wisely. Use them as a good steward. Whether he's given you one good thing or five good things or ten good things. Use them wisely for his glory as he directs you in his word. But don't trust them because they're not the answer. And if you haven't got many of the world's good things, don't be jealous. Don't be covetous. Because that's sin. Rather we should all delight ourselves in the Lord. And trust the Lord. He alone is our hope. He alone is the rock upon which we are built. We lean on him. Our shield and our defender. We go not forth. Alone against the foe. And it doesn't matter who we are. And what we do. And what our circumstances are. He is our hope and our answer. We trust him. And isn't that what our Savior said in John chapter 14 verse 6? You, know you know the verse John 14 6? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Let me say it one more time. If Christ isn't your Savior this morning, you need to turn from this failure of a world view. And trust in the only living hope there is, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of glory, 
the one who alone gives you true hope because he is alone the one who is seated upon the throne of glory our God and our saviour who not only can deal with your sin and make you right before himself and the father and the spirit but is also your saviour and your friend and your lord that's real hope finally we come to sovereign providence we can't leave this chapter without considering this I want to come towards the end of the chapter verses 36 through to 45 we have the interpretation of the dream Daniel's already given to the king the dream we read it earlier there's this statue head of gold shoulders and chest of silver then you have the chest and the, and the thighs are of bronze, the legs of iron, and then the feet partly of iron, partly of ceramic clay. Each one of those was, we are told now, representing an empire that was to come. And the key is given to us from verse 36 onwards. Nebuchadnezzar, we are told then, is the, the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar representing, embodying in himself Babylon. He is the head of gold. Not because Babylon was the greatest empire in the world, by the way, landmass. I might be wrong, but I think in terms of sheer landmass, the greatest empire that's ever existed in this world was the British Empire. I think. I might be, I might be wrong on that, but I think that was by, I think at one point it was something like a third of the world's landmass. No, it wasn't because it was the greatest in extent, because the Persian Empire after him was bigger, and the Greek Empire after them was bigger, and the Roman Empire after them was bigger. <coughs> Rather, it was the only undivided empire. The next that would come, the empire of silver with the chest and the arms, well, automatically you've got two arms, you've got a division. That would be the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persians first conquered the Medes, but the Medes were kind of an integral part of the Medo-Persian Empire. And that incorporated the Babylonian Empire into its own. It was ultimately a peaceful takeover of Babylon. Then followed a third empire with the belly and thighs of bronze. And again, there's a division there. That's the Greek Empire and under Alexander. And Alexander blazes across Persia and into northern India. And on the way back, dies of illness. And immediately his kingdom is divided into four. As four of his generals take north, south, east and west. And ultimately two of the generals subsume the other two. So you have a division ultimately of two. And then you come to the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay. And again, here we are in the Roman Empire, and there's clearly a division. And in fact, there were many, many divisions in the Roman Empire down the centuries. We, we used to thinking about the emperors, but actually before the first emperor, who was Octavian, Augustus, Caesar, um, you had basically an entire time of, of, of civil war going back well over a century, where men like Sulla and, and, and ultimately Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and, and all the others taking part in it. But it's the Roman Empire that's represented that ultimately strong empire, lasted for over a, a thousand years, spanning vast areas of the world, North Africa, down the Nile, across at its, its peak into parts of Persia, up 
touching on part of modern Europe through Greece up towards the Crimea and right up across into the most barbarous part of the known world then the island of Britain. This is predicting history before it happens. That's why some say, oh, well, Daniel must have been written in the second or probably more likely the first century BC so that it, this isn't predicting history, it's describing the history that's happened. There's no linguistic reason for saying it. There is no literary reason for saying it. Indeed, there's no historical reason for saying it. There's only one reason for saying it, and it's the view that says, I don't believe in God. That's it. That's the only reason for saying that Daniel had to be written as recently as the 1st or 2nd century BC. Because they don't believe in God. Christians, you know, one of the most dangerous places you can go for your faith? It's a Christian bookshop. There are so many books on the shelves written by people that either don't believe in the God of the Bible. Or want to tell you a story and spin a lie about the God of the Bible. Be very, very careful. Be very careful what you pick to read. The fact is that God does know all of history because he has decreed what shall happen. It's in his sovereign hand. God does describe history here before it happens. He knows what's coming down the line of the future. It's already in his hands. <coughs> and then there's one more part of this king's dream that we haven't mentioned yet. It's mentioned now in verses 34-35. This stone cut Without hands that rolls down and strikes the feet of the statue. The feet crumble, the weakest part. And the whole thing is ground to dust. Because of this one stone. And then we're told when the wind has blown away the dust of that statue. So that it's gone without trace. The stone becomes a mountain which then fills the earth. That's explained in verse 44 of course. That God is going to establish a kingdom and it will not be given to men to rule. It will be the kingdom of God and it will stand forever. That, my brothers and my sisters, takes you back to Second Samuel chapter 7. That God is going to establish one to sit on the throne of David forever and ever. What does Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 say? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David... The son of Abraham. Because he is the one who sits upon that throne forever and forever. He is the super exalted saviour. And so Daniel says in verse 45. Nebuchadnezzar God has made known to you what will come to pass. So what we have here is this kaleidoscoping of history. So we are coming to the saviour. We are coming to our Lord Jesus Christ. We come in effect to his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the establishing of the church, the going out of the church. Now suddenly we're in the book of Acts and we're following the church as it's driven by the Spirit first out of Jerusalem and then into the Gentile world and then to the ends of the Gentile world. And still that work is ongoing and still the gospel is going out to this day. That's why it's important as a fellowship you have missionary interest. That you follow what God is doing around the world. And it should thrill your heart and thrill your soul. Here is the one church that is being built. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has both Jews and Gentiles in it. 
And here's the only way of salvation, the one way in the one Lord Jesus Christ, so that there is one body, one church, to the glory of God forever. You see, unlike the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of God is eternal. It's eternal. What does this world have? It has many things. How long does it have it for? Perhaps, maybe, for all of somebody's lifetime. And then what? And it leaves it all behind. I've been in the ministry now well over 20 years, and in that time I've attended many, many funerals. And I've seen some incredible things. If you ever hear of a grave robbery taking place in a, in a cemetery in Fenton in Stoke-on-Trent, better check up on me. I might be under police arrest. <laughs> I did a funeral there once and into that grave, in the coffin with a person, went thousands upon thousands of pounds of silver bullets, working coat revolvers, precious stones sewn onto a linen shirt. The man was buried dressed in the finest cowboy outfit money could buy. And there it stays in the ground because he's left it behind. That's what happens to the finest of this world's things. But for the child of God, our hope goes beyond the grave. Because God has established a kingdom. And is building his church. And our Savior has gone to prepare a place for us. And the day is coming where that kingdom will be established across the world. And we will be with him forever. You see, Christian, you have every reason to be confident in the Lord your God and Saviour with regards to the future. You can be completely confident. Not because of your health or your wealth or your intelligence or your home or your hopes or your family or anything else. You can be fully confident because of who your God and Saviour is. And you've no reason to be discouraged. You really don't. Please don't look around the fellowship and say, but we're so few. And then you look outside and you see the flats and the streets and the homes and the tower blocks and the people. And 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 your God still has a work for you to do because he is still building his church, still establishing that kingdom. And that stone that was cut out without hands that has smashed and is smashing the empires of this world... (coughs) The Lord Jesus Christ and the church that he has built it to the glory of his name. You are part of that. And one day, with joy in your heart, you will bow and confess before him that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are millions around the world today who will do it through gritted teeth, but you, Christian, will do it with joy. And that will be to the glory of God the Father. You don't know what tomorrow's bringing or next week or next year. Two weeks ago, one first thing in the morning, I felt fine. I went for a swim. It was a good swim. I enjoyed the swim. I came out feeling really healthy. That evening, I had a sore throat. The next day, I had COVID. We don't know what's coming in the end of the day, never mind tomorrow. Or next week or next month or next year. We don't know. And if you're going to be tied up with the politics of this world, frankly, it doesn't look very hopeful, does it? Not in this country, not in Europe, not in America. And you look beyond the borders of the so-called Western world and you begin to scratch your head and wonder what on earth is going on. 
We seem to be moving back into the most dangerous days of the Cold War. What insurance then does the child of this world have? In its armies, an army can be defeated. In its finance, your money can become worthless. In its government and international treaties, it doesn't take long to tear them up. With all the history and prowess and power and learning and political knowledge accumulated over decades and centuries, that can be overthrown and a civilization disappear in very short space of time. Walk through Europe, walk through Africa, walk through Asia. You're walking over the dust of empires and civilizations long gone. If God decrees it. This vision reminds us that God not only knows the future, he is the one who has decreed the future. It's not that God knows the future in a second-hand way as some sort of disinterested observer, but rather he is involved in everything. For it is God, verse 21, who changes the times, the seasons, removes kings and raises up kings. God does that. For the child of, of this world, that's terrifying. But if you're trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, it's the greatest hope and comfort of all that whatever happens in this world, whatever happens to you, is in the hands of your God and Saviour. That's where your hope lies. That whatever happens, he has decreed in his providence and all is under his control. No mistake, no lack, no surprise. That's why we can trust him. This chapter also assures us that the Lord Jesus Christ will build his church. Do you realize that? It's his church. How many times over the years have I heard Christians come up and say, or even come up to me and say, you know, this is my church. Really? Truly? Give me chapter and verse on that. When I was in Bible college, our principal was very good at doing that. If you said something, he'd immediately turn around and say chapter and verse. Chapter and verse. Matthew 16. I will build my church, said Jesus. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You do understand the implication there, by the way. If you know anything about siege warfare, it's gates that are besieged. Gates do not do the besieging. It is hell that is besieged by the church. You were here on the front line in Chelmsley Wood, besieging the gates of hell. Not the other way around. You are not a small company besieged by hell. You are laying siege to the gates of hell here. And he will build his church. He'll build it in Chelmsley Wood. He will build it in Birmingham. He will build it in Sutton Coalfield. He will build it in Wolverhampton. He will build it in Royal Leamington Spa. He will build it in England. He will build it in Europe. He will build it in Africa. He will build it in the subcontinent. He will build it in Asia. He will build it in Australasia. He will build it across the Pacific Rim. He will build his church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You are hope lies there in your God and your Savior. There are no ifs, there are no buts. There's no unforeseen in the providence and decree of God. The church will be built and everyone who is chosen in the sovereign will of God will be saved. And at the last, it is the kingdom of our God and Christ that stands forever. That's why you labor and must spend because there's real hope to what you do. The only real hope is in what you do. Because it is sure, it is certain, it is eternally decreed, it is strong and unbreakable. This is the sovereign God at work. 
close with the same plea. My friend, if you are not yet in Christ, if you're not yet trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, the only hope, the only answer, why not? What do you have that is greater than what is found in Christ? What greater end and hope do you have than this? None! You need to turn from your sin and flee to the Savior. You need to come to Jesus in repentance of sin and trust in him. And he will have mercy on you and save you. And to him be the glory. Amen.